2020 was the year of the pandemic, vaccines should make sure that 2021 is the year of the recovery, shouldn't they? All countries are doing what they should be doing, which is trying to protect their populations. But viruses do not respect borders. And as long as the virus is circulating, uh, there will be reinfection. That's the head of COVAX, the global organization set up to get vaccines out to billions of people around the world, even in the face of vaccine nationalism. Not only does this me first approach leave the world's poorest and most vulnerable people at risk, it's also self-defeating. And we hear from a campaigner who's trying to build public trust in vaccines about where things stand with getting true information out to the many vaccine skeptics. I see COVID as a huge opportunity for governments to rebuild trust. If we can come out of this with publics having a different appreciation of their governments, we could shift the whole trust landscape. Subscribe to World vs. Virus on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to like, rate and review us and join in the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, Digital Editor at the World Economic Forum. And with a look at how the world could be vaccinated, this is World vs. Virus. We have the vaccines, we can see a way out of the pandemic, but vaccines cost money and many parts of the world can't afford to buy them, while richer countries are ordering even more than they need in some cases. At January's virtual Davos meeting, the Davos Agenda, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa had this to say. We are concerned about vaccine nationalism. The rich countries of the world went out and acquired large doses of vaccines from the developers and manufacturers of these vaccines. And some countries have even gone beyond and acquired up to four times what their population needs. And that was aimed at hoarding these vaccines. And now this is being done to the exclusion of countries, of other countries in the world that most need this. And it was a great Applaudable effort by the World Health Organization to set up the COVAX facility where it felt that we needed to, to agglomerate all our acquisition processes so that there can be equity in the uh, distribution and in the access to vaccines. Now, rich countries in the world are holding on to these vaccines and we are saying release the excess vaccines that you have, you have ordered and, and hoarded. There is just no need for a country which perhaps says, has about 40 million people goes and acquires 120 million people, uh, doses or even 160 million. And yet the world needs access to those vaccines. Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa. And this is Dr. Tedros, head of the World Health Organization, speaking recently. Not only does this me first approach leave the world's poorest and most vulnerable people at risk, it's also self-defeating. Ultimately, these actions will only prolong the pandemic, prolong our pain. The restrictions needed to contain it and human and economic suffering. I call on all countries to work together in solidarity to ensure that within the first 100 days of this year, vaccination of health workers and older people is underway in all countries. It's in the best interest of each and every nation on earth.
So what can be done? What is being done to get vaccines delivered all around the world? To help answer that, I'm joined by my colleague, Alex Court, who's been looking at the global system set up to try to do just that. Hi, Alex. Hi, Robin. Yeah, the, the programme is called COVAX. Um, and I spoke to Aurelia Guerin, the head of that programme, and she really put it in a nutshell. COVAX is really focusing on making sure that all of the people across all countries are able to access vaccines if they need them, not just some people in some countries. So that was Aurelia Ingerin, the head of the COVAX facility. And what she told me was that 190 countries around the world have now signed up to the COVAX program. And that means COVAX will start providing these countries with vaccines in the first quarter of this year. Those doses would only be enough to protect frontline health workers and some high-risk individuals. So while it looks like COVAX is on track to deliver 2 billion vaccine doses, by the end of this year, there's clearly still a lot of work to do. Let's listen in to what else Aurelia had to tell me. 2021 is really going to be a crucial year. We're going to need to secure more doses. Those doses will need funding. Um, and there are a lot of complexities that lie ahead. We're still uh, pretty deep within the, the pandemic and we're still a long way for, from, from beating the virus. We're seeing new strains uh, appear. Many parts of the world are in their second and third waves. And we still need to get a lot of vaccines out to vulnerable um, populations. And um, all countries are doing what they should be doing, which is trying to protect um, their populations. But um, as we know, viruses don't, do not respect borders. And, and as long as the virus is, is circulating, uh, there will be reinfection um, that, that is uh, possible. So um, the, the COVAX argument is really um, one that I think has been recognized by many countries. We've had 190 economies uh, sign on to recognize the fact that um, a multilateral response where vaccines can be distributed across all all countries um, who need them, focusing on the highest priority populations and the most vulnerable groups is going to be the key to unlocking um, the, the end of uh, the pandemic and making sure that um, we have uh, our uh, absolutely vital healthcare workers protected. And then once we have our healthcare workers protected, we have those that are at high risk um, of mortality protected as, as well. So um, the COVAX effort is really um, a view to recognize um, that a vaccine nationalism is a suboptimal response uh, for, from a disease and economic perspective. So 190 countries are now on board. They all agree that vaccines should be available to people young, old, rich and poor. But how does COVAX make that happen? We're only part of the way through the process. Uh, so first of all, very, very good news in terms of vaccine development. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, as far back as, you know, a little bit more than three months ago, it was not obvious exactly how the vaccine development success rate would look like at the moment of the, the first candidates are coming through with good safety and efficacy. The second part is on making sure that it's not just a few doses of vaccines, making sure that we have scaling up of production of vaccines. Obviously, that requires a huge amount of um, know-how, but also funding. And so uh, focusing on making sure that we have funding, particularly 
for countries that need donor support, the low-income countries, um, is going to be an important aspect. And then that's not the end of it until a vaccine is actually in the arm of someone who needs it. Um, the vaccine in itself won't have done anything. So making sure that we um, look at the complexities around regulatory approvals, that we work very closely with countries to make sure that they have um, their systems ready in place. And that's both um, the, the, the hardware and the software, so to speak, hardware in terms of having cold chain in place. You need cold chain for the vaccines that we're talking about. Uh, you need to have the trained uh, healthcare worker um, capacity in place. So all of these aspects of supply chain, delivery, logistics are going to be um, as important as making sure that the vaccine itself is there. And are you confident about getting this huge task done? So from a from a Gavi perspective, we've had a lot of experience with uh, vaccine rollouts, um, also with rollout in situations of um, uh, short supply. Um, just to give you a little bit of the context uh, for, for for Gavi over the last 20 years, we've helped vaccinate 822 million children, and that's prevented 14 million deaths. Um, and so what we what we typically do is make sure that um, we have um, agreements in place with um, a, a number of manufacturers. It's not one single product or one single manufacturer that's going to be the key to making sure that we have uh, the, the the vast quantities of, of vaccines um, that, that we need. And that production scale up happens uh, rapidly. So we have um, secured um, as, uh, 2 billion doses um, of vaccine uh, to be able to uh, vaccinate uh, key, key populations. And that is done through agreements with multiple manufacturers and making sure that we have a, a very strong supply chain um, in place with production coming from a number of, of different countries and, and manufacturers. So a lot of the leadership of COVAX comes out of Gavi. And Gavi is the Global Vaccine Alliance, which works very closely with partners like the World Health Organization, UNICEF, uh, the World Bank and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to lead vaccination campaigns all over the world. And Gavi is one of the better known public-private partnerships to come out of the World Economic Forum's meetings in Davos. So I wonder if you could explain how this approach of bringing businesses together with governments will influence success. So at Gavi, we're extremely proud of our heritage, um, uh, being, I think, uh, one of the uh, big public-private partnerships that have come out uh, of Davos. Um, very much, I think, from its uh, inception 20 years ago, we have looked to um, really bring out the best of the public and private sectors um, of uh, from philanthropy, from civil society, and the very large uh, range of um, partners that we work with. And I think it's very much building from this foundation that we were able to very, very rapidly uh, put together the, the, the COVAX um, partnership. And we're really witnessing, I think, amazing corporate responsibility uh, from the many partners that we have that share our vision for affordable, fair and equitable access um, to, to vaccines. So I, I think this is what has helped us bring it together in a, a really record time. I think it was, you know, not even three months ago that um, COVAX really came together when we had initially 64 
um, countries uh, sign up to COVAX. And then since then, we've built that up to 190 um, economies across all of um, geographies, as well as you know, low in, low uh, income settings, all the way to to high income countries. That was Aurelian Goyen, Managing Director of COVAX. You can find out more about COVAX and the full list of countries that have signed up to the global vaccination effort at the website www.gavi.org slash COVAX hyphen facility. You're listening to World vs. Virus and we'll be right back after this. The worst thing in the world is to have a solution in search of a problem. Are you solving the right problem? That's the key question for any leader especially this week's guest on Meet the Leader, Carlos Brito, the CEO of Anheuser-Busch InBev. He'll explain how the company tackles pain points for farmers and retailers across the globe, including those in developing countries, and how they're ensuring groups like smallholder farmers can take advantage of new advancements in weather data and other technology. We have smallholder farmers, and they have a flip phone. So sharing had to be all based on flip phones, an SMS so we could get people to be included as opposed to excluded. He'll explain why the company is investing in tech like blockchain and working to bridge digital gaps and how those investments kept the company moving last year and kept its communities resilient. He'll also share his favorite book and what makes any meeting more worthwhile. If you enter in a room and things are decided in two minutes or three minutes and everybody agrees, that was not a very good session. There's all that and more on the World Economic Forum podcast, Meet the Leader. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to World vs. Virus, where we're looking at the global efforts to vaccinate people against COVID-19. Earlier in the episode, we were talking about the COVAX facility, the nuts and bolts, the logistics of getting vaccines to people around the world. But even if vaccines were made available to everyone around the world, there are still a fair number of people who will refuse to get the vaccine. We can see this from, for example, a YouGov survey, which involved 19,000 people in 17 countries who were asked this question. If or when a COVID-19 vaccine becomes available, will you get yourself vaccinated? To discuss the results of that with me, it's Alex Court again. Hi, Alex. Hi, Robin. Uh, Looking at this particular survey, what we saw was some very interesting numbers coming out of various parts of the world. So just to take a couple of countries uh, which were involved in this survey, for example, the UK. In the UK, 73% of people said they would get vaccinated. In Denmark, the number was 70%. Then if you look at Poland, for example, 37% of people said they would say no to a COVID-19 shot if offered it. But then to take a look at France, 48% of people surveyed said they would not get the jab. So that's half, almost half of people in France said they wouldn't get the jab if it was available, compared with about a quarter of people in the UK. Now, you've picked us a clip to kind of talk to this issue, um, something from the Davos Agenda, the virtual Davos conference a couple of weeks ago. Who is it that you've picked out for us, Alex? I was listening closely to the session which involved Heidi Larson. The panel was called Boosting Vaccine Confidence. And Heidi Larson, she is the director of the Vaccine Confidence Project, which is a research group at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So basically, she studies public confidence in immunisation programmes. So let's have a listen to what she said to the panel. Trust is all about relationships. I mean, it's very relational. 
trust is generally defined most deeply in the philosophical literature, and it's two things. It's about trust in the ability um, if, if you believe the, your doctor or your politician or your local healthcare worker or system um, is competent. And the other uh, domain of it is motive. And I think what's particularly concerning in some of the challenges that we face now is that a lot of people don't trust by default. I mean, I grew up with trust as the default, <laughs> but the world is, is not... Um, like that in many settings. And I think what's happened in the context of COVID uh, is it's thrown even more uncertainty. And and you trust, as we all know, the old adage goes, it takes a long time to build and you can lose it pretty quickly. COVID and the pandemic is no longer quick. <laughs> it's been a long haul already. And we've got this very mixed um, news of uh, vaccines coming down the pipeline, but then this whole new portfolio of variants, which is adding more uncertainty, and we have a, a lot of supply issues. And as anyone who's read the news, a very uneven landscape of public confidence. I, I see COVID as a huge opportunity for governments to rebuild trust because it's highly related. I mean, if we can come out of this with publics having a different appreciation of their governments, we could shift the whole trust landscape. If they feel like they've been let down and betrayed, broken, we're going to have to start from scratch again. And we have learned learned a lot from previous experiences. I mean, when you think back to H1N1, the biggest challenge for people accepting vaccines uh, was that they were too new. And that, you know, that was a virus that we knew a lot. I mean, we were familiar with. It was around since, you know, 1918. I mean, the character, you know, these things evolve. But, I mean, that particular strain was not a brand new strain. The flu vaccine was a very common uh, preparation. It's just we needed to add that strain because it came into circulation later, but still it was the newness. And one of the phenomena with uh, the new vaccines is we've got a brand new virus. We're still running to catch up with and figure out. Um, we've got uh, whole new ways of making vaccines. Part of the reason they um, uh, were so fast, that was the other anxiety, is that uh, they're able to be faster. And we haven't talked enough about the, the new technologies that have made this possible. So some of these things are historic. Even the rumors about COVID being caused by 5G. In H1N1, it was 4G. In SARS, it was 3G. I mean, these things are rumors uh, like I write about in, in Stuck, my book. Um, they kind of, they're there. They, they occur when the fertile ground allows them and then they sleep, they hibernate, but then they're back when the moment is there. And this is, this is a, a fertile moment for <laughs> these kind of things. Like many experts who are looking at how large groups of people think about healthcare and vaccination, Dr. Larson is looking closely at the impact of social media. When Dr. Larson spoke about her work with Facebook and other social platforms, she made it clear that this isn't a straightforward issue. Well, um, I actually work pretty closely with or collaborate pretty closely with Facebook and, and some of the other platforms. It's not so straightforward. Um, it's not like the world is divided into into fake and real news. Uh, there's a lot of hugely ambiguous 
uh, information and the um, the extreme, the people who whose motive, getting back to the trust definition, uh, the people whose motive is to disrupt and is not about anxiety about vaccines, um, are getting quite clever in the sense of they see, they know about the regulations, it's all out there. Um, so they, they're turning their statements into questions. They're seeding doubt. They're seeding more uncertainty. They're endorsing people's concerns. And that kind of thing is very hard to delete. It's not, you know, overt fact. If, it, if you have something that says drink a, a quart of chloroquine to cure COVID, that if I, as Facebook, I can say that's overtly harmful. Take it down. Um, but there's a lot of ambiguous, which makes it challenging. I'm not apologizing for the fact that, you know, more can be done, uh, but it's not so straightforward. And I think in addition to the silent majority who are, I would call them in political sense, you've got your base, you've got your swing vote, and you've got your um, the opposition, which some of which is highly organized and disruptive. But that swing vote is much bigger these days than it has been historically. And part of the reason, I'm sorry to say, is that we haven't, we have taken for granted, we have been focusing as a public health community too comfortably on the, the base and not taking the questioners uh, seriously enough. And too many of them are slipping to the opposition because the opposition is listening. They're listening, they're endorsing their concerns. They say, we care. They have, if there are a hundred of them, they'll have 10 different groups for everybody's different concerns. The base is monotone, same message all the time. Take that vaccine, take that vaccine. Um, um, and we haven't done enough in the middle, and that's where we need to move. Heidi Larson, and you can hear more from her in a September episode of World vs. Virus called Anti-Vax, How to Counter the Myths in Time for a Covid Vaccine. During this episode, you will have heard us mention the Davos Agenda Week several times. That was the online-only virtual meeting that happened last month. If you missed it, you can catch up here. What do you get if you bring together two dozen heads of state and government, well over 500 leaders of the world's biggest companies, scientists, campaigners and academics from all over the world? It's Davos, but this year an entirely virtual event. Vaccines must be seen as global public goods, people's vaccines. We rejoin the international climate effort with humility and ambition. We risk facing the greatest rise in inequality since records began. It could take more than a decade for billions of people to recover from the economic hit of the pandemic. The world's leaders tackled the world's biggest issues, the pandemic, inequality, technology and climate change. My name is Greta Thunberg and I'm not here to make deals. If we don't urgently act to protect our nature, the next pandemic will be around the corner. If you have half an hour to spare, Radio Davos will bring you an audio roundup of the action. This has never been done before and was something that has shown the power of science. If you're solving an existential risk, if you're part of the solution, not part of the problem, it is a tremendous opportunity. Download Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Search Radio Davos or The Great Reset or visit wf.ch slash podcasts. Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum. 
And if you like our podcasts or podcasts in general, please join the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Just search for that on Facebook. And you can find the back catalogue of all our podcasts at wf.ch slash podcasts. And please subscribe, like and review them wherever you get your podcasts. And get all our coverage of COVID-19 and many other big issues at weform.org and across social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, TikTok, using the handle at WEF. My thanks to this week's reporter, Alex Court, and the guests Aurelia Nguyen from COVAX and Heidi Larson from the Vaccine Confidence Project. World vs. Virus is a podcast from the World Economic Forum, presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. For now, from me, many thanks for listening and goodbye.